Hello, hello, hello. I hope everyone had a great 4th of July weekend. This is the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And boy, do we have an awesome episode for you all today. But before we get into it, just a quick reminder, if you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and a review. It helps more people discover our content. Also subscribe to our newsletter at thefounderhour.com for exclusives, special announcements, inspiration, and more. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and LinkedIn at The Founder Hour. On today's episode, we sat down with Trevor Milton, founder of Nikola Corporation and Nikola Motor Company. Founded in 2014, Nikola is focused on designing and manufacturing hydrogen electric semi-trucks, pickup trucks, and more, which we'll get into. The company recently debuted on the NASDAQ Stock Exchange and is currently worth about $20 billion. This has led to a ton of criticism for having such a high valuation without a product on the streets yet or a single dollar of revenue on the books. And so we're excited to sit down with Trevor to get his candid thoughts on what many people might be wondering. We also spoke with Trevor about his upbringing in early days, his views on education and what his experience was like, the successes and failures he's had throughout his career, what inspired him to start Nikola, how he really feels about Tesla and Elon Musk, why he decided to take Nikola public now in the midst of a global pandemic and what his long-term vision for the company is, and much, much more. We started off the conversation by learning about where Trevor grew up and what he was like as a kid. Yeah, so I mean, I grew up in, uh, in Las Vegas, Nevada. And uh, from the time I was about, I think I was about four or five years, four years old, five years old or so, I moved to Las Vegas. My dad was managing the Union Pacific Railroad. And so I grew up in Vegas until, um, you know, for those, for those years. And it was a, a huge part of my life. I grew up on trains. And that was really what made me build the Nikola truck today. As I was about eight years old, somewhere, somewhere between six and eight. I don't know the exact year it was. But I used to ride these trains. My dad would send me off on these locomotives uh, during the day because I'd go to work with him. And, uh, and, you know, one of the train engineers looked over and he said, one day they'll be smart enough to build a, an electric locomotive semi-truck. And that was like the spark that went off in my head when I was a kid to want to build this company. And I spent my, you know, my childhood on trains. And then, you know, after that, we moved out to, to a small town. My mom got diagnosed with cancer and we knew that she was going to die. And so she didn't want to die in the city. She wanted to go die out in the, out in the mountains. She wanted to be at, um, she just didn't want to be in a city. So our family up and moved. My dad would still commute back and forth. And we lived in a small town called Kanab, Utah. And there was less than 10,000 people in that town. So I went from a huge city to literally farm town. And it was a big shock to my system, but it's also what made me uh, uh, who I am today. Um, I got to spend a lot of time on the farm uh, working and learning how to, you know, how to run a farm, irrigate. Um, you know, hoof, you know, hoof horses and just, there was just so much, so much fun, you know, that we got to do shear that, you know, that the, the sheep take all the, take all the fur off and just a lot of, you know, milk cows. I mean, it's crazy. It's a true farm. So went from, uh, went from the city to the farm. My mom eventually died when I was 14. And that period of time from the time I was 14 to 16, my dad was working remotely in Vegas still. And so, you know, that whole time I had to kind of be a, um, I had to learn survival because my parents weren't there. My mom was too sick. She was in bed. My dad was working. So I, I always, I kind of had this big belief that you shouldn't coddle your children, that they need to learn survival. They need to learn how to fail. Um, Cause when they're young, that's what teaches them never give up. If you, if you kind of, kind of coddle them, they become, they become, you know, they just give up at the first sign of like, you know, trial. And I see this with a lot of my friends' kids where their kids are just, they have no idea how to, if they fail, they just go back to their parents. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I, I remember weeks on ends where I was out working trying to find money to, to even eat. And it's just, it just is a, such a different um, idea, you know, of, of like survival mode when you're a kid. It teach, and that's why I got to where I am today because without that, I would have failed thousands of times before I got to where I am right now. And, uh, Trevor, one thing that you mentioned earlier is that there was a moment when you had gone to work with your dad and, uh, you know, talking about the electric locomotive, right? Yeah. How old were you? I think I was about, I think I was either six years old or I think I was six, but I could be, it was either six or eight, but I think I was six. 
it, you know, that's a long time ago, right? I'm 30, I'm 38 right now. So yeah. I remember 32 years yeah. ago, kind of hard. Right. And that, and the reason I ask is because, you know, let's call it three decades ago. Let's make you a little younger, 30 years ago. Was there even a concept that you can kind of conceptualize what an electric vehicle, nonetheless, an electric locomotive or an electric truck would look like? Yeah, totally. I mean, mainly because the engineer would show me all the electric motor, motors on the locomotives. So it, when I was a kid, he was like, can you imagine these motors on a semi-truck, how efficient they are? And, you know, what's funny is electric motors really haven't improved that much on efficiency. Maybe maybe 5 to 10%, that's it, over 30 years. That's all it's ever gone up because they used to have non-permanent magnet motors. And then it went to permanent mag magnet motors, which were the biggest improvement on efficiency on, on electric motors. So that's kind of where I, where, um, you know, he was, he would show me these things. Now I didn't have like a idea what the truck would look like, but I definitely had an idea what the powertrain would look like. That was a visionary. Um, so I guess when you ended up, you know, getting a little bit older, I know you went to college and then you eventually left college after I think a semester or so was what I saw. Um, tell us like what your vision was at the time, you know, did you always feel like from that, you know, young age of six that you would eventually end up doing something with, uh, automotives and, and transportation, or, uh, did you have something else also in mind when you, when it came time to go to college? No, it was, you know, I always loved, you know, the electric motor, the electrification for me as a child was awesome because, you know, you know, you know how it is as a kid, you know, tractors and trains are like the coolest thing to, to most young boys, not all of them, but most young boys. Um, and I just love big machines. It didn't matter if it was a tractor or trailer. And, you know, tractors would use electric motors to spin around and trains would use electric motors to move. And it was just like the coolest thing because it had so much torque and so much power. And so as a kid, it's like, you're just fascinated by that. And so, yeah, I mean, that was always my, my, my dream was always to play with electric motor, you know, to build something with motors, not play with the motor, but to build something with the motor. And I, I was never that, you know, it's funny. I was never the most brilliant kid in school. I never, you know, I didn't do well with, with grades, but I did really well with hands. Like anything I could touch, I could, I could do better than others. I just couldn't study in a book. And so I was always like a hands-on kind of kid. I, I would like to tear things apart and build them or a creative type of thing with my hands. And so that was kind of my, you know, that was my dream was really to build, was, was to build something. I just didn't know what it was going to be other than I thought it'd be cool to build a semi-truck because that's what the guy told me I should go build. So Trevor, kind of knowing all this and almost knowing that, you know, one day you might be that guy that builds that, uh, you know, that electric truck. Did you, you know, want to pursue a degree and, you know, like a college degree and beyond, or were you more focused on just, I want to get as much experience as possible out in the real world? No, I mean, I knew from a young age, and this is one of the, one of my passions in life is to try to build, help somehow help the education system improve for kids. Cause I knew from the time I was like five years old, 40 years old, I was not made for school. It just did not fit me. I hated it. it everything about it was wrong. Um, I didn't learn like the other kids learned. Um, people would kind of make fun of you for learning differently. And so I instantly knew I was different, like a little bit different. I didn't know if that was good or bad. I mean, as a kid, you always just think different's bad. So I just assumed I was kind of a, a you know, an odd duckling in, in elementary school, but I was also the most personality there. So, you know, I was friends with everyone. So they all loved me, but then I was like the weird kid because I didn't learn like they did. And so right. I just knew it wasn't for me. And I only went through school for social. That was it. Um, it was only to, to learn social skills with friends and, you know, and meet girls. That was, that was it. That was the only reason why I ever went to even college was just to go meet girls. Cause I knew college wasn't for me. I only went for a few months and I was like, I've got to get out of this. It's like everything about my body was revolting. It was like, get out of here. Cause it was just not yeah. for me. But um, yeah, that was the reason why just social. And I totally agree, you know, in terms of the education system, definitely we need to see some reform in terms of, you know, this one size fits all model that we've done for so long that apparently, yeah. you know, is the best way to teach kids it just doesn't work. And, but, you know, on the flip side, like there are certain, uh, specialties or things that I feel like it's hard to learn in the real world. Like you, you, you sort of have to get the foundational knowledge and, and, and obviously building like vehicles and just technology and whether it's computer programming or mechanical engineering or whatever it might be is sort of one of those things where you could obviously learn in the real world, but it's harder. So I guess for you, you know, how, how did you learn? How did you, you know, figure out what you needed to figure out to see if this was something that you wanted to pursue? 
Well, I like what you said because you said one size does not fit all. And, and school is an incredible thing for a lot of people. It's literally their life and, it, and they love it and they just thrive in it. And, uh, you know, my wife's sister is a geologist and she just thrives in school. She just loves everything about it. And it's so different for everybody. This is why it's so important that they offer different solutions for different people. If they would have given me a platform to learn differently where I could learn to do things on my own, which is harder, or like with my hands, it is harder. But it, 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 what it does is when you learn something naturally outside of a book, it becomes instinct. When you learn something inside of a book, it becomes knowledge. So think about that phrase, instinct versus knowledge. I also love to fly. I'm a pilot. Okay, so this is one of the things I, I love to do in my pastime. And I learned how to fly a plane through instinct. I never once did a single day of ground school or like or where you would where you'd go and learn books until a long, long time after I learned to fly. So everything I learned to fly was always through instinct. It was never through knowledge. Now everyone learns differently. So some kids learn through knowledge, and that's how they and then they, they learn instinct afterwards. I learn instinct first and then knowledge second. And so I, you know, when I go fly. You know, a lot of the guys I've flown with have said they've never they've never seen anyone that can land a plane as smooth as I can in their entire life. They're like, they've just never seen it. But why is that? It's because I learned instinct rather than knowledge. It was it was thousands of sensors that I learned to hone in rather than thousands of pages of books to tell me what to do in the situation. And so it, it's a different way for everyone to learn. And I, I I that's just how I did it. And everyone is so different in this world, and it's and it's also why the world goes around. The people that work for me are PhDs. They're the most brilliant minds in the world. They learn through knowledge. And then they get in the, they get in the business and they learn instinct. Everyone just learns differently. And, and most of my guys are all PhDs. You can't have a lot of Trevors in an organization or the thing will fall apart. Right. <laughs> and and you know, I'm sure there are a lot of kids that are, are like you that don't find school particularly useful that, you know, they just want to sort of just dive in and learn that way. But you know, the way the system works, obviously it's harder when you're, when you're trying to go get a job where you don't have like certain credentials, but for you, like, were you just thinking, I want to be an entrepreneur? Like, I'm just going to start my own business or, or did you, were you thinking like, I want to get a job, you know, in this sort of industry and then figure it out? Well, I think that, um, you know, it's kind of interesting because I don't know what, I don't know what situation would actually fix. Like, I don't, I haven't studied enough to find out whether or not the ideas I have for education would ever even help or, or not help. It's a really difficult thing to find out what the end results would be. Um, I do know this. The people that don't do school very well are very instinctive. It's just natural it, because it's their, their natural, um, you know, in, in, sure. in the natural selection of DNA in this world is that if you're weak in one area, normally you're stronger in another. It's like an artist. An artist can become incredibly talented at art, but very rarely do they ever go to school for it. They visualize it. They see it. They're just talented. They're good at it. And so, you know, it's it's kind of a weird thing, man. Where like I think that if you have you have people that are in, that have the natural instinct, they're probably not made for college. They should go start their own business. The one and learn how to hire people that are smarter than them in knowledge. And that's what I did. It took me a long time. Well, this is my fifth company. So three of them have been successful. Two were failures. And the two were failures were because I thought I needed to have knowledge, and I, I didn't. I needed to be. I needed to have the instinct, and so that's kind of my belief is that you have to learn how to hire everyone around you that complements what you're not good at. And it's funny, you know. I went out. There was a podcast called Tesla Daily. I did, and I I talked a little bit about this. And I talked about how my weaknesses were, and I talked about how I hired people around me to be better. And you wouldn't believe the amount of people. I mean, in the thousands that attacked me and said, "Oh, look, look how pathetic this guy is." You know, acknowledging how he's not smart. And I'm like, dude. You are a worthless cause. I'm, I just cannot believe that people would actually say that because I'm like, the, the number one talent someone can ever have is to learn where they're weak at. It's the greatest asset you'll ever have in your life is to find out what you're not good at and then bring people around you that are better than you. And they're like, oh, that just means he's not good at anything. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, this, this world, and sometimes I feel like this world's a lost cause because <laughs> yeah. most, you know, most people would teach you that, that if you go to... You know, some of the best schools in the world, they actually teach you that you need to have a good team. It's not about you. I'm only, I'm the leader. I'm the, I'm the innovator. I'm the visionary. I can see the whole chess match, but I'm not the, I'm not the bishop. I'm not the pawn. I'm not the, you know, the, the brook. You've got to have a whole chessboard of people to make a chessboard work. And the people that think they're everything are the biggest, they're going to cause the most damage to society. So I'm a big believer in hiring people that are smarter than you. 
Yeah. And it's like self-awareness, that emotional intelligence that you just don't learn in school and school doesn't do a good job of, of teaching us. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know, you're obviously very kind of Pat mentioned it, a very self-aware person or you, you know, almost developed it. And you talk about these two failures that you had, um, you know, what was different between those two businesses and then, you know, the three other successful ones that made one a success and the other a failure? Because a lot of times, and, you know, Pat and I have at this point done over 150 of these interviews with different founders across the country. And a lot of times, you know, we hear that similar kind of failure over success story and these folks just kept going. But I'm curious, you know, for you, what do you think was that differentiating factor? And for those that are listening that are either entrepreneurs themselves or want to be entrepreneurs, what's a good piece of advice for them, you know, when they're building a company or if they're in the midst of building one right now? You know, I'm just curious well, to hear your thoughts. I'll, I'll answer that for you. And I also want to just give people a little bit of direction. Um, I've only written two articles really in my two or three in my whole life. <laughs> and they're on my LinkedIn. That's it because I'm not a big writer. But I gave the, the two or three on LinkedIn are the ones that talk about the most um, the lessons that I've learned about how to build a company, what to do, what not to do, and also how to get up after you fail. So those are really detailed explanations. And I'll give you some great over, overviews right now of some of that with some new content for you guys. So, you know, when you get into a, the difference between my successes and my failures were, were there is no standard exact reason why. There's a couple overviews of why, and I'll explain what those are. Sometimes you can have the right product at the wrong time. Um, and sometimes you can have the right, uh, you can have the, you can have the right product in the wrong location. And so it's so much about making sure that when you start a business, you're starting it in a location that would actually allow it to thrive. When I started one of my previous companies, it was called upillar.com. We did online, um, online, um, uh, like you could buy and sell like an e-commerce, you could buy and sell. And we developed, I, I think it was the very first uh, shopping cart ever to be developed where you could, where you could order. 40 items from 40 different people and put it in a shopping cart at one time. And we, we, we did that back in 2000 and, oh gosh, I don't know, probably 2003 or 2004, something like that. And you know, I mean, it was forever. It was 16 years ago, you know, before Amazon was really even Amazon, we, were, we had the very first shopping cart where you could buy. I mean, there might've been something out there I didn't know about, but we're the, really the first e-commerce where you could buy 40 items from 40 people and it would create one, one, uh, one ticket, break them up into separate invoices and allow you to return certain items and other items. And it was all with one credit card payment. That was it. And it was the first time it had ever been done. And Amazon ended up using that idea with their, with their website. And, and, and it, was, it's, uh, it was the right company at the wrong time for me. What that meant was, is I was not ready to run a company that big. I had failed because we grew too fast. We had 80 million people on our site. And I couldn't grow. I was in a small town in Utah. No one even knew what the internet hardly even, I shouldn't say nobody, but it was Utah, all they knew was construction. And here I am trying to go out to investors talking about e-commerce. I should have been in San Francisco because that's where the hub of internet was at the time growing. So one of the advice Why didn't I was you go? I honestly, I didn't think, I was too naive. I didn't think that I, that I would fail due to where I was. I just had no idea that it was that big of a deal. I had no one around me that could guide me. There was no, you know, there was no previous person from Microsoft to help me or to introduce me to everyone. I mean, we were doing really well. I mean, we could have been what Amazon is today. And, and I'm actually glad I'm not, I wasn't because my journey in life has been more impactful what I'm doing. And, and, ba and Bezos has done an incredible job with what he's doing. And so that's another reason why you should, why it's so important to see everyone win. You know, when you should never think that you should win every time. It's a terrible thing. So you know, it was just at the wrong place. That was that was really it. It was a wrong place, wrong time, perfect technology. My, you know, my other my other failure was is that I was building a a company that built um, natural. We designed natural gas to be injected into into diesel engines to clean them up with emissions. So you can tell I've been at this for fifteen plus years. Um, I was in the heavy duty trucking. I really wanted to um, recalibrate engines to burn cleaner with natural gas. We did that, and one of our investors stole a lot of our intellectual property, and we even to this day we're still in a lawsuit with them. We've we've won most of everything we've done all the way up to this point in that suit, and it's just it just taught me that you know the people around you are so important. And I picked the wrong I picked the wrong investor. Um, he was a very um, very bad person, and he had other desires in life, and it was unfortunate. So 
that company failed. But a lot of it is because I, during those two companies, to be honest with you, it's because I didn't look for the right people. I thought I could do it for, I thought I could do it myself. And so if I would have surrounded myself with better people in the, in the executive level, I would have probably succeeded in both of those because they would have told me I was in the wrong place. And they would have, you know, they would have said, hey, we really need to move. We need to do this. I have experience. I was the, in that e-commerce side, I was everybody. I was the whole executive team. It was just a terrible move. And you just, you know, these are just lessons you learn. You can never, it's like riding a bike or becoming a professional snowboarder. You're going to wreck and wreck hard because you're going to throw some big flips. And it's just part of becoming good. And now, I, you know, luckily I've wrecked enough in my life and learned enough that now I have a world-class team behind me. We built a $28 billion company or whatever it is today. I don't even know what the, I don't even know what to close that. So I, I would have to go and look. Um, I'm curious. So again, uh, you know, like talking about sort of the, the, the types of, uh, I guess, specialties that you could learn in life, like some, some things are highly specialized, like for example, again, like building cars and hydrogen, like just anything related to science. And, and so I'm just kind of curious, like for you, you know, while you're working on your previous businesses, um, is that the way you learned sort of the technicalities when it comes to this entire space or, or did you most mostly like focus on hiring like really, really smart people in, in each of these areas that you could sort of build a company around or both? Well, I think there's two things. There's, there's, I always tell people to do what you're good at and, and just absolutely master it. Be the shack of what you do, right? Or be the LeBron James of what you do. The reason why is if you're naturally better than everyone around you is something, whatever that is in life, if you work hard at it, you're going to become, you're going to blow everyone away. And this is the, he was just like Kobe or LeBron or, or Shaq. Like they knew what they were good at. And when they actually practiced, they would practice harder than everyone. And they were, and they were the best. And then that became untouchable. This is what you need to become. You need to become untouchable. You need to become so good at what you do because you're talented at it. And then you work your ass off and you learn. And this is only for entrepreneurs, by the way, because if you're, if, if you're, if you're talking about, you know, more school related things. That's a different thing. I'll give advice towards that second, because it's a different personality. But if you're an entrepreneur or, a, or, you know, someone who builds their own future, like a, like an athlete or whatever it is, find what you're good at and don't try to, don't try to go do everything. Just do one good thing and master it, become the best in the world, and then surround yourself with other masters that have done the same thing. And there's, you're almost unstoppable in this world. So that's kind of my idea there that, that you should, that, and if you're a scholar person where you're going to school and you're becoming a PhD, what you want to do is you want to become the best at what you want to go into the field that inspires you the most. Maybe you're not the best, but you're the most inspired. And the reason why is, is someone who's in school or someone that's becoming someone, inspiration is probably the greatest key to becoming successful inside of your industry. So if you're a geologist, you better be inspired by rocks. So it's, and, and by doing that, you're going to become naturally, you're going to become one of those people that an entrepreneur is going to look for to hire because they're going to say, this person's inspired. They love it. They eat it. They sleep it. They drink it. And they're damn good at what they do. And so if this world takes like, you know, you got your Queens, your Kings, your bishops, your rooks, your, you know, your pawns, everyone needs to fit on that chessboard. And the sooner an entrepreneur learns how to build this chessboard, oh my gosh, I, I, it took me, it took me, you know, four, you know, four or five companies to get here. And so finally, and Trevor, just to kind of that, that point, you know, you talk about that the sooner an entrepreneur learns that obviously the easier and the faster they can build their dream. But would you agree that it does take time? It does take failure to learn that like a 21 year old kid. Sure. They can watch your interview. They can listen to every episode of the founder hour, but until they get to a position that they've done something, the experts around them won't necessarily trust them yeah. to do that, right? You're on it, bro. You've interviewed a lot of people. Like you're you're thinking down the path. You're, you're dead on. This is the thing. I always tell people, look, use my use my interviews to teach you what you need to do when you've already learned your lessons. Like you, you want to go into my interviews, listen to them or whatever, your guys' interviews, and learn what's coming at you so when you fail, you don't feel guilty. You don't feel like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm a failure in this life. Dude, bulge crap. I can't tell you how many times I've failed in my life. The greatest people in the world have to fail. You have to fail so hard you lose everything because the, the, you will never become the best at anything you do unless you failed miserably in life. It is the get back up 
the never give up, the complete analyzation of yourself, learning what you're good and bad at, learning to love yourself and not criticize yourself for your failures, but learn to learn to truly love yourself. That is when you're ready to go to the next step. You have to fail. I, I don't know. There's only one or two people I think I've ever even heard of, and I couldn't get maybe Zuckerberg, but he failed a lot of the times along the way too, but he, he nailed it the first time. It's and he's grown for if you talk to Zuckerberg, 20 years it took him to get to where he is today. And he's had his butt handed to him a dozen times in bad situations because he wasn't ready to go. You don't want to be in that position in your company. I always tell people, look, go fail two or three times and then start a company. Because <laughs> the first two or three times is college. If you're gonna spend 60 grand on college, dude, go spend 60 grand on losing a few times and then learn and then you're ready for, for the real world. Right. Right. And I totally agree with you. I know, I know me and Pat have discussed this several times. I just think that, you know, you see a lot of kids out there and, you know, you see Pat and I are both 28 years old. You even see people our age that almost think all the time to themselves, wow, we're not successful yet, right? We haven't done it yet. We haven't reached wherever we want to kind of go, even though sometimes we don't know where we want to go, right? And it's because of the narrative that's being put out there that, you know, there are the Zuckerbergs of the world. There are the, you know, Jack Dorsey's of the world that have built these incredible companies and they did it while they were young. But then when you look at the facts and you look at folks like yourself and a lot of other founders, they've failed several times. They've had 10, 15, 20, 25 years of experience, which you don't hear about until you get on the founder hour. Right. And then you're like, oh shit, I'm just starting. Right. So how, how is it that we can educate and really get it into the minds of younger folks? Like, look, you know, don't aim for a win. And sure, like it's great if you do, but aim to learn instead of aim to win. I think that um, I think you're right on. If you aim to learn, it's so much better than aiming to win because eventually you'll win. It, it's it's so it's difficult because I always whenever I talk to people, they say, you know, how long does it take to build a real company? And I said, ten years, no matter what. You cannot do you cannot build a real organization in under ten years. Now, there have been weird fringe cases of this happening, okay? I'm not talking about the outliers. I'm talking about the, the likelihood of success. It's going to take you 10 years, and you're going to fail usually two or three times along the way. So you better dedicate yourself to 30 years. And I'm 38 now. I built, you know, Niklo, you know, 2014. So, you know, if you think about that, that was I was 34 years old before I started Nikola. 34. And I'm 38 now, and you know, I, I obviously the stock goes up and down, but I got a net worth of about eight or nine billion dollars, somewhere around there, maybe seven. I don't know what it is. It changes every day on the stock market. But the thing is, is like I've had my butt handed to me so many times, and at 34, I didn't know if I was still going to do it or not. Like I still had doubts. I mean, I was like, I don't know if I want to do this again. I've had four companies. I'm exhausted. I'm tired, man. I was like, that's how I felt. I was like, I don't want to go through that. I don't want to lose everything again in life. But I found my inspiration. I found something I felt like had a niche. I, I talk about never fighting the current. That means if you're fighting the current, you're going to lose all the time. Your, your business should naturally be building and quickly and fast and feel good. If you're fighting it, you're only going to have a mediocre company. If you're going with the current, you're going to go 100 miles further than everyone else fighting the current. So find something that is like with me, 2014, I knew zero emissions was coming. I knew it. I was like, the whole world's going to go zero. And I, I was just like, if I get in on this now, I'm going to be one of the first people doing it. And sure enough, by the time, you know, 2014 came around, I got mocked by all my competitors. They all told me I was a total fraud. They're like, oh, Missouri Mission will never work. Batteries are too heavy. Hydrogen's too expensive. Diesel's the only way to go. We're going to clean up diesel trucks. Well, then all of a sudden, you know, Dieselgate happened with Volkswagen. And then all of a sudden, like, Tesla was really starting to be successful. And if you think about all these things, they all, like, played into the factor where all of a sudden the current was now floating me down river and I didn't have to I didn't have to fight it. All I had to do is make sure I got the right rapids. So find your rapids, dude. You know, find find your stream, you know, find your rapids. Don't fight the current. Find which way to float. Build something. Let the wind push you. And now you have a good now you've got like a 25% chance of winning. There <laughs> you still got a 75% chance of failing. So don't feel bad if you fail the odds are totally against you. But that's the greatest thing in the world is is when you can beat the odds. I want to talk about this moment where, you know, in 2014, you said you saw zero emissions kind of getting into the space and this is kind of the future and you really believed it. Um, and you wanted to, I'm assuming, start a company um, out of that. But one thing that, you know, we often see is 
with entrepreneurs when they have an idea. Um, oftentimes, it's like as human beings, we don't know what we don't know, right? And if we're not exposed or learn about a certain concept or something, then we don't really know what the possibilities are, right? And with any you know co- world changing company, any world changing idea, um, oftentimes you know it might take something that you've never even like you don't know much about right so i guess for you like did you know what you wanted to build at that very moment or was it kind of just a a hunch that hey something's coming here and i'm gonna i'm gonna try to figure it out no i knew what i was gonna build because the the solution is that is the is the reason why you are gonna succeed it's not just an overall feeling like look i can tell you right now here's the thing i can give you the overall feeling in the in the next 10 years you're gonna see air travel change dramatically um, you're going to see health change dramatically and you're going to see travel change dramatically and you're going to see emissions change dramatically. So there you go. There's, you're going to see a, a couple, I believe a couple big, um, unfortunately, I think you're going to see a couple big conflicts in the world where you're going to have probably countries go after each other. And so here, so there's my, there's my, my, my vision into the next 10 years. Okay. So now I've told everyone what I believe the next 10 years is going to change. So now that you know what the next 10 years are going to do, how do you make money off of that? You, you can't unless you actually got a real pro, a real solution. So here's here's a good one for here's a good one for uh, entrepreneurs. I'll just throw one out. This just came to me on the fly. This is how I think. Um, soon you're going to have interchangeable travel throughout all the countries everywhere. Um, you're going to have coronavirus. You're going to have people are going to want to know that you're that you either had it and you're cured or not. Think about this. Like these are things where you can capitalize on this. Everyone's going to get more health conscious. They're going to get more travel conscious. And they're going to get more border traveling uh, restricted or cautious. So there's a lot of ways where people can capitalize. But if you don't have a solution, just understanding what's going to happen doesn't do you do, do you any good. So I knew zero emission was going to come, but I said, "Look, well, that's that's great. But if I don't have, if I don't have a very good product, what good is knowing what's coming?" So what you know. What did I do? I was like, okay, well, I know this is all going to come. I want to build a couple things. One, I want to build a semi-truck. This is what I've wanted to do since I was six. Okay, so now I want to build a semi-truck. Well, that's great. There's a lot of competition. How do I beat this competition? How do I be ahead of them? What do I have that they don't have? How can I place a queen on the chessboard that they don't have? Okay, well, they can have 100 pawns, but if I got one queen, I can beat them. So I was like, how do I do this? And that, the next one was controlling the energy. I got to be able to control the energy. I got to be able to distribute the energy and I got to be able to sell it to all the truck consumers as part of one package. That's why Nikola is so unique. We don't just build semi-trucks. We're an energy technology company. We build hydrogen. We drove hydrogen down from $16 a kilogram down below $4 a kilogram now. So why is that? Well, why is that important? Because now I can provide zero emission to a truck cheaper than diesel. We've now won the game. We've checked me. You know, there's nowhere for the nowhere for the opponent to move because no did one you know that was going to happen. Huh? I'm just curious. Like, what, did you know? Like, did, were you seeing that far ahead that you knew that was going to happen? That once you started oh, getting yeah. into it, you could drive oh, yeah. it down. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Like I, every bit of it, I saw before I started. So one of my good friends is a is a downhill mountain biker. He's really good. He's one of the best in the world. He'll go do 30 foot backflips off the cliffs and you know the Red Bull Rampage, right? So, and I asked him, because I love to downhill mountain bike, I'm, I'm decent, but I won't do 30 foot clips. I'll, I'll do, you know, 10 or 12 foot drops. I'll do things like that, but I'll never do the big stuff. And I, you know, I'd ask him, I'm like, dude, how do you, how do you do this? And, and you know, what do you, and he says, well, before I run, I, I already know every single visualization of every single pet thing that can happen from the time I'm at the top to the bottom, every stunt I'm going to do every speed, whether I'm too slow or too fast and what I'm going to do in that situation, it's all completely pre-planned and the rest of it is just natural. So I, I have these visuals of what is going to happen all the way down. I've thought about every one of them. I know what tricks I'm going to do. I'm fully prepped. I know what speed I need to have going into the, into the jump. And he says, no matter what happens, very rarely in my life, do I get to that spot without knowing exactly what I'm going to do going off of it. And it's like, it's like so it kind of helps people understand how well prepared someone is that knows what the hell they're doing. I, every, whenever I walk into a situation... You know, whether it's an interview with the top experts in the world, I've thought about every variable that is pretty much possible, not everything, but most of it. I know exactly what they're going to talk about. I know, I know what answers I need to have. And I walk into there and naturally good and gifted. And remember, it's not knowledge, it's instinct. 
my instinct is greater than theirs because I did not learn in school. So I know usually I can run circles around them because not only do I have I learned the knowledge, but now I got the instinct and they don't understand the instinct. So you got to have the instinct. You got to know what you're doing. And my instinct was I need the truck. I need the, I need the fuel. And I need to, I need to own that vertical integration. Cause if not, I'm not, I'm just going to become another truck manufacturer and Daimler will squash me like the cockroach. I am. If you know, when you talk about how Kevin O'Leary from, uh, from Shark Tank always says, if you don't have something special, they're going to squash you like the cockroach you are. So it's, it's, that's what I love about, I love like Shark Tank. I love, I, I've watched every episode of these things. I love uh, uh, Marcus Lamotis from The Prophet. I watched every single thing he's ever done. It's, I, I truly love to learn from these entrepreneurs that have become successful because they'll shoot it to you straight. I mean, they're brutally honest and I love that. Trevor, the one thing I'm curious about before we go deeper into Nicola and everything you've done is, you know, back in 2003, I think it was 2003, when Tesla first was founded. Um, as a kid that already almost had this vision of what you want to eventually build, um, what was that like for you seeing Tesla kind of starting? And then as they grew and as they became more known and, you know, Elon started kind of going out there, what did that make you feel and, you know, what were you doing? What were you thinking? I'm just curious about what was going on in your mind. Well, I mean, so it was really cool to watch, you know, um, the, the electric vehicle space come about. I mean, Tesla, when he first started, he was literally just calling people on the Internet, asking them to come work for him that were like random, you know, electrified, electric, you know, people building electric conversions on their cars. So he had no clue what, a, what an inverter really even was when he first started. He was like just calling people like, hey, you want to come work for me? It was, it was really cool to see it all into where he has gotten today, right? Like there's a lot of props. People think that like, I don't like Elon. It's not true. There, you know, we do have like, we have this big competition against each other. But honestly, like I, I, I feel for a lot of what he's been through in his life. I know, I know where he is and, and I have a lot of sympathy and a lot of respect for like the shit he's had to deal with in his life to get to where he is. So I saw this like this electrification coming about. And at the, when I first started, I was like, well, batteries are nowhere near where they need to be. Tesla was still building very low energy density batteries with look with these cars that would not go very far. And so I started out building what I knew, which was a natural gas turbine in a semi truck. And we were going to control all the, all the natural gas around the country. Well, what happened was dieselgate happened and everything kind of escalated faster. And then everyone started hating carbons altogether. So I knew right that, so there's a good pivot point, good learning lesson. I talk about fighting the current. I knew in that moment that if I went down the path with natural gas, which at that time was more efficient and abundantly available, that I was going to be fighting the current three, four years down the road. 99% of people run the company would have never pivoted because they already had a product. We had a turbine. You know, we were, we were getting ready to we we're getting ready to go. It was it was a great thing. Um, but what I did is I said, you know what? I'm not going to fight this current. I know emissions are a problem, and the world's not going to accept them. And I need to be zero emissions. So I pivoted to fuel cell and hydrogen. Because I believed that the weight of a semi-truck was going to become a problem. And then I just pivoted my business model to say, okay, instead of natural gas, we're going to provide hydrogen with it. And lucky enough, I was the first to the market. We nailed it. And uh, we got, you know, we have over $10 billion in pre-order reservations for our semi-truck. And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, if you got to see that end result. You got to be willing to pivot if you see things changing. So that's, a, that's another good lesson to a lot of the entrepreneurs out there. Yeah. And real quick, again, going back to the inception of, of Nikola, um, I know you had come off of, uh, you said, you know, a few different companies and a couple had been successes. Where were you at in your life? Like, did you have enough money to not kind of worry uh, on this, you know, new project that you were going to start off if you were going to pay the bills or were you still kind of lean? Like, where where were you at? Uh, no, I was doing good. I just built my previous company. It was a company called Dehybrid Systems. We did natural gas and hydrogen storage. And, uh, you know, we did really well. We did pretty well. It was a good acquisition. A company called Worthington Industries bought it. And, um, you know, it was, uh, they paid about $20 million in cash total up front for everything that paid off some debt and different things, paid out other people, you know, all the founders, the employees and everything else. So I had a little bit of money. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't soup, you know, I wasn't like where I, you know, I wasn't doing, you know, I didn't have like unlimited funds like some of the big um, investors do. I only had a few million dollars at that time after taxes. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to put it all into this. And because I knew a few million would never get me to where I wanted to be. So I just took that money 
And, uh, and I just took a big gamble and I got Worthington, the company who bought my previous company, I got them to give me a couple million bucks. And so, you know, I started out with four or five million bucks and, you know, kind of went down that path. I was all in. And, uh, and so I wasn't hurting, but at the same time I was all in and uh, I put all that money in. And then eventually, you know, just down the road, we raised a few million and we raised about, you know, four to four to six million on top of that, then about 10. Then we hit a $30 million investment and we hit a hundred million dollar investment and $125 million. And then we, then we hit, then we did a, a $700 million IPO, just barely reverse merger. Um, and with that comes another 300 million in, in warrants. So you're, you're a billion dollars in, uh, in, you know, in this last round. So, you know, it took me 10 or 12 rounds to get there. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you guys the funny story. It's, it's harder to raise your first three million than it is your first thirty million, and it's harder to raise your first thirty than say, it is. That's uh, why I wanted to kind of focus on that. I was about to say that because, like, you know, obviously, like once you start getting more and more investors, and the idea gets validated, then more people kind of want a piece of the action, and it's a little bit easier to sell it at that point. But earlier on, like those first few million, it sounds like Worthington obviously knew knew what you were about. They they believed in you and they, they invested. Um, but yeah. was it hard at all? Like getting even, you know, all the money that you needed to get this thing going? Cause it, it is a pretty, oh, I'm assuming gosh. a capital intensive company. Dude, it was a nightmare. We were two days, we were two different times days away from going bankrupt. We actually had, we, we went to hard money lenders and we borrowed, my dad had it. My dad had built up after we lost all that, everything we had in our life. Um, he had built up a little bit of money and, and a little bit of wealth and had a house in Hawaii that was free and clear. And I had my house in Salt Lake that was free and clear. And we ran out of money. We, had, we were trying as hard as we could to raise money. We couldn't raise it. And uh, we had used everything. And at the time, one of my buddies, Jimmy Rex, he does a podcast. He came in with uh, half a million dollars at that time. And then a few other people came in and invested at the same time too. It got us enough for about two or three months run. And my dad and myself went, went and borrowed hard money loans on our homes where we only had six months to pay it back. And it was, um, you know, at 20 to 30% interest rates. It was just insane. And they only gave us half loan to value because of the risk. It was like, it was the worst decision in the world to do financially. But I had so much confidence about where that, that we were going to get some groups over the line that I did it anyways. And it was the biggest gamble, uh, biggest gamble ever and very painful. And sure enough, we were able to bring in we we're days away from going bankrupt and we brought in $30 million from an investor and we were able to pay it all off and have money to get there. And it was the most painful thing I ever went through. And I honestly thought that we were going to go bankrupt. So it, those are the people that think that like, we just got here. Oh yeah. They just, they just got lucky. That's total bullshit. You have no idea what it takes. And unless you're willing to give up everything in your life, you'll most likely never get here. Trevor, I know it was hard to raise money, but was it hard to, get people to understand and believe in what you were doing? No, it was very easy because I, I showed them the problem and I showed them the solution and I showed them spreadsheets that would validate it. So you, you, as an entrepreneur, you have to be able to sell something, but more importantly than selling, you have to show the proof. And they wanted to see the numbers and we hired really good financial guys. One of my favorite hires in the world was a guy named Tony Epperson. And he was a brilliant mind at spreadsheets. And I brought him in and I said, I said, look, dude, I need you to build this thing. And he helped me build the whole thing, uh, the entire business model um, through all of these very, very complex spreadsheets to prove it out. That way, when I went in with these smart financial guys, you know, they, they, they love entrepreneurs, but they don't care about your vision. They want to see numbers. And I couldn't communicate with them because they're not visionaries. They're number guys. So with Tony there, it was really nice to have someone there who's a brilliant mind and uh, who can help me put all that together and then explain it to these, uh, these, these high profile investors and Luckily, we were able to we were able to do that through uh, through through the spreadsheets, you know, and through the numbers. But you can't just have a vision; you've got to be able to back it up. And I know you said you you know you had a lot of it in your head that you kind of knew what you wanted to build. But I guess in those early days, those first few years, was there anything that came out of nowhere? Like you were just kind of like, I wasn't expecting this, and it's just kind of hit hit you, and it was a big challenge that you guys had to kind of get through. Yeah, I mean, one of them was the fact that, uh, you know, going from a, from natural gas turbine to a fuel cell electric, I mean, to change your entire business model on the on the fly, like literally the whole thing. So everything we had been doing up to that point was for natural gas and hy- and and, uh, and hybrid, right? Like a natural gas hybrid, almost like what you, you guys have heard about the company Hylian or whatever it is, is coming on, on they're going to be public here soon. They're essentially doing the business model that I was, that, that I had done 10, you know, eight, you know, six, seven, eight years ago. <laughs> 
So I'm like, man, they're, they're picking the wrong market to go into because they're, they're six or seven, eight years behind, you know, behind me. And I'm just like, poor guys, they're going to get their, they're going to get their butts handed to them. Um, but it's to pivot, to have the guts to pivot away from natural gas turbine to a, to a full fuel cell electric powertrain to change natural gas stations over to hydrogen stations. That's a monumental transition. And there was no network for hydrogen. There is a, there's a network for natural gas everywhere. So I was like, I mean, every one of my investors was like, oh, hell no. And I was like, you got to distrust me on this. And luckily I had people that really believed me or I would have been in, a, in some serious, uh, serious trouble. Trevor, when you first started this, um, did you know what you were going to call it? Yeah, I knew right away. That was why I, I named it after Nikola Tesla, which is the, the Croatian-Serbian engineer, the brightest mind in the world. He's a guy who developed the, the, uh, the electric motor, um, the generator. Um, he developed a, a, most of all the AC current for electricity. He was the, you know, everyone knows who Nikola Tesla was. Well, Tesla had the name for the car company. And I knew I was going to get a lot of grief for it, for naming it similar to what Tesla is, but I didn't care because it had nothing to do with Tesla. I had to do everything with my childhood hero, which was, which was Nikola Tesla. And so I'm not going to just go change the name of my company over some dude who has a car company. It was, I own the trademarks on it. And so I was like, why shouldn't I be able to do this? It's, it's it, the great, think about this now. If Nikola Tesla is up in heaven or wherever he is, if he exists or if he, you know, if he came back reincarnated as a tree, whatever it is, I, you know, however you believe, my my belief is we're paying we're 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 truly paying homage to the greatest inventor in the world. So either he's up in heaven happy that we're that we're changing the world and his name is used twice towards the greatest change in environmental impacts in the history, or he's a tree breathing cleaner air now because I'm getting the diesels off the road. The dude's happy no matter what. Like I don't care which way it is, he's happy. What was was part of it though to to get some press though? I mean like Give us the no. real kind of talk behind it. Like, did you know that if you had called it Nicola, that people would get pissed off and that that would work in your favor? No, I mean, any publicity is good publicity, but it was never about that. I actually, I was actually a little concerned because I'm like, they're going to just, all they're going to do is cry, you know, cry that we're, that we're similar in nature after the same person. And I didn't really care because I'm like, look, I don't believe that I'm the, the most important person in the room. This is the big difference between me and, me and Tesla or Elon. He, when you when, t- when Elon's there, he's the only person in the room and no one will ever get a word. In it. He, it's his way or the highway. I manage my company and my life completely different that I believe that I am not the most important person in a room or in a company. I believe my company is more important than myself and my cause is greater than myself. It's complete opposite of him. And so what I, the reason why I didn't care is because I truly believe that it was paying tribute to Nikola Tesla. And it was more important to pay tribute to him than it was about my ego. And so if, if Tesla really cared or if Elon really cared about paying tribute to the greatest inventor in the world, he, he would be stoked about Nikola existing as a company, the name. They aren't. So it's, it goes to show you the different personality between me and me and, you know, me and Elon. I, I just truly believe I'm not the most important person. He believes he is. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see uh, the Nikolas and the Teslas on the streets and it's just like Nikola Tesla on the street. I'm, yeah. I'm sure he never thought oh, that would happen. Dude, um, and it's a brutal battle. We're, we're, we're going to be the first group in the world, I believe, you know, full production with an electric semi-truck beating Tesla. That's why just a few days ago, he announced full steam ahead. You know, everyone's got to dedicate only to the semi-truck. Let's get this thing out. And it's it's really because they, uh, um, you know, it's a, it's a good competition for all the people that are, fo- that are following this. You know, I've said good and bad about him, which is which is okay. I'm also very sympathetic to him and the company, and very grateful for what they've done. So I'm not a hater on uh, on on Tesla. What it comes down to is it's a battle, and what's so great about a battle is new, better technology always comes out because of it. There's never been a time in history where competition was not good. It's always good, and so I, I try to tell people, look, it's not about. I have I hope to death that Elon succeeds and I hope Tesla succeeds because for the right. greater good for everybody. So for sure. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you, you mentioned know. the, you mentioned the reverse merger with VTIQ and you know, we kind of know what the pros and cons are of, of merging with a, a, you know, a SPAC and you know, the, you don't have to go through the whole IPO processes and all that kind of stuff. But I want to kind of get into your head of like, why now? Like why, why did you feel like, you know, you, you had raised all this money and, and you guys were obviously, 
um, heavy in, you know, trying to get this thing into production. And, and I'm assuming, you know, obviously the additional money going public is going to help a lot with that. But was that the reason? Like, was now the right time? And that's kind of why you did it? Or because obviously like if you want to go on twitter and see what people are saying like you, you'll see people obviously the the critics saying like oh you, they don't have a product yet like why why is their stock price so high they're worth more than four this and that and whatever it might be i'm just kind of curious like what why the decision was made like at the moment yeah it's a good question there's a lot of variables that go into that and I'll, I'll, I'll go through each one of them or at least most of them that are important um one of them is i knew i had a base around the world that loved nikola um changing the heavy duty transportation to zero emission is is beloved throughout Europe. So Europe was a huge fan of Nikola. They all love it. Also, Europe's a huge fan of hydrogen and also is Asia. So America is kind of the only one against hydrogen. That's because Elon calls it a fuel cell. Um, but the rest of the world is very hydrogen pro. And I'll be very clear that batteries are really good in a lot of situations and much better than hydrogen in some situations. Hydrogen's better than batteries in some situations too. So one size does not fit all, just like education for kids. But um, going, going back to that question, I had a huge base of people that were very excited about Nikola. So I knew I'd have a good foundation of stock buying from people that wanted to see us succeed. Number two is I knew that the world didn't necessarily care so much anymore about revenue one or two years in. If you look at the historical of our, of our competition, they lost, they lost money for 10 years. It was never about... It's never about like how much revenue you do. It's more about how much impact you're going to do on the world now. So my, the generation following me, um, which you guys are part of and other groups are following that, they care more about, they want their money going to a good cause. It's why they'll go into a coffee shop that costs twice as much if they're doing sustainable coffee or clean coffee. They don't care about the money. They care more about where their money is going. And so it's more, they're, they're heavily invested into us because we're changing the world. So that's a, that, that was a big one. I, so I knew that going into this. The other reason is, is that I knew that um, we definitely needed massive funds. And when WeWork came around, what, what happened was WeWork was going to go public. And when they found out that all of it was kind of a fraud, it all came crashing down with this glass house. And so every investor that came into Nikola afterwards would say, tell me why you're not a WeWork. <laughs> And so, because they, like, they, they just questioned everybody. It didn't matter. It wouldn't matter if it was me or anybody. If that's the first question they would have, because they were, we work is all over the news everywhere. So we, we just, we knew immediately that the private markets were freezing up. We're like, this is, you don't want to fight the current. Why even fight it? Go where the money is. And now the next question I got was a lot of criticism from the financial groups. They said, why are you going public in this? You know, the world's getting hard, pandemic's hitting. You know, the, the coronavirus is hitting everybody. Why in the world are you going public right now? And this is what sets a visionary apart from everyone else. All the critics said, oh, you're an idiot. And Trevor, the way my mind works, I sat back and said, these critics are idiots. <laughs> Why? Because the environmental impacts have a greater effect on the coronaviruses and the outcome on, on respiratory issues than anything else. So I was like, we got to go public right now. It's perfect because we're going to be the only thing people talk about because no one else is going to go public. So the difference between a visionary and someone who actually knows what they're doing, not just a visionary, but an executor with vision, is they can see the solution during the fog around them. And it's kind of like me being a pilot. There's a thing called instrument flying where you're actually looking at all your controls. You'll be widened out around you. You can't see anything outside the window. But you see that you see the you see exactly what's going on with the screen and you know where you are. That's the same thing with me. When I looked at this, the whole world was scared. There was white all over, white outside. You couldn't see anywhere. And Trevor, myself, I saw, I said, you know what? I can see that the world is going to want, the world wants a cleaner air. They want a cleaner technology. They want something to talk about. We're going to be the only thing they talk about. And environmental impacts are really important to the coronavirus outcome. So it's kind of like, it, it was it was all these things came together and I'm like, it could not be more perfect. And then when we launched, all of a sudden the critics were like, you know, then they threw another, then they then they just pivoted and started saying, oh, you don't have a product. So it's like, no, they're never happy, but it's it's okay. It's uh, it's part of the deal. Trevor, I'll be honest with you. You know, when I first read about Nikola, I was also skeptical because, you know, you bring up a company like, you know, WeWork. And even though WeWork wasn't per se profitable, they still had revenue they had proven out the concept people were 
paying the ludicrous amount to actually work there, right? Despite all those things, they were in business. People knew what it was. They saw the location, etc. Obviously, I don't agree with their business plan and their strategy. And, you know, obviously, that's the result is what happened. And eventually, we won't know that we work even existed. But when you look at a company like Nikola, you know, you go public pre-revenue, pre profit any of that any of the any of those things you've been building this company for six years how do you gain the trust of you know potential shareholders or potential customers that look you know you should invest in the future you know you close today and you're worth above 25 billion dollars the company right 27 billion dollars and to me to be honest with you that's pretty crazy that a company that doesn't have a product release that doesn't have paying customers until most recently when you guys had the pre-orders um, is worth that much money because you don't learn that in school, right? In school, you have to, get, you know, you build a product, you build a business, you have some sort of, you know, service, whatever it may be, you sell it and you make money. That wasn't the case here. This is basically a technology that the world hasn't seen implemented yet. Okay. Explain to us how you build that level of trust, because to me, it is still crazy. Yep. Hey, look, that is probably the best question that you could ever ask. And, I'm, and it's really fun to be able to explain the psychology behind this, because this is what really did it. So when we work, when we work, went to go public, they found out all the bad stuff about them. They would have never found that out if they would have stayed private. So what happened is I knew that our company was legitimate. I knew that our business model was rock solid and I knew our cost to operate was cheaper than diesel. So in trucking, companies work on 8% margins. So if you're if you're eight percent cheaper, you've already bankrupted a, a, an entire market. Eight, eight or eighty. Eight. Eight percent. So if you're eight percent cheaper to drive than diesel, diesel is now extinct. And we were twenty. We're like twenty to thirty percent sometimes cheaper. So it's game over. Essentially, if you don't own an Equa truck, you're gonna go bankrupt. So I knew I had it. So I was like, okay, I got the winning hand. It's like you know, if you got a full house or whatever, you got a royal flush in cars, you're going all in. You're like, you're not worried about it. So that's why I went all in. I said, you know what? Let's show the world. Let's show the let's show the world how, how our business, let's show our cards. Because then they could actually judge for themselves and know that we're legitimate. Okay, so we came public. We showed our cards. We laid them out. The world dove into the economics, the financials, and the analysts were stunned. They're like, damn, this is a really good business model. Like, really good. All of a sudden, Fidelity comes in, a couple hundred million dollars. You know, um, PSAM, Norge, all these other groups, these blue chip investors, the greatest ones in the world got their hands on these, on these prospectuses. And they're like, Shit, this is like really good. Oh my gosh, we're in. Plus, it's a it's an environmental play, so we're all in. And and then you started gaining the momentum there because we showed our cards, you know. And that's part of it. You have to show your cards at the right moment. So now that you have, now that we showed our cards, we showed the market, we showed the investors, we raised the capital. You know, when we came out, we were still only you know twelve dollars a, a you know twelve thirteen fourteen bucks a, a, a share, right? So then the rest was on me. And, you know, not just me, my whole team, but the rest was a lot of it on me because of the, this is the next reason why we became successful. The reason why we were able to go from 12 to $70 is a couple of reasons. One is we're less than a year from production now. So everyone started to realize, oh my gosh, you know, yeah, people say Nikola is all fraud. They signed a multi-billion dollar value joint venture with Iveco out of Europe, the fifth largest trucking company in the world. So we have trucks coming out of our plant in Europe now all electrified, beating every competitor. So that is a huge thing. They're like, wow, they, they actually are real because the Beco would never do that. They're, Case New Holland Beco, they're one of the largest companies in the you know in the world. So they would never partner with us if we were a fraud. So all of a sudden now you have the credit, you know, the kind of the investors questioning, okay, are they or are they not? They, there's a lot of good, but there's also a lot of questions. So I just started addressing each one of these questions. Okay, the next one is um, how are you going to how are you going to control the hydrogen? How are you going to control the infrastructure? Well, we or you know we we built the largest hydrogen station in the Western world here in Phoenix. So we have the largest hydrogen station in the Western world here in Phoenix at our headquarters. All of a sudden, all the critics crickets. I love it. Critics to crickets. They never said another word about hydrogen after that. So now all of a sudden, okay, you have the investors, you got the hydrogen, then the truck. So we launched this truck, and now you can see that hydrogen truck driving. Fully functioning all over, you know, on the roads. We delivered a load of beer with Anheuser Busch with the hydrogen on. That means the hydrogen fuel cell was working. It's not bullshit. Everyone got to see it. There's video of it all over the internet. And now, all of a sudden, now like the critics say, "Oh, you have no product." Well, that's that's just a lie coming from most of it's coming from just the testicle. 
We do have product. It's been on the road. It's delivered beer with Anheuser-Busch. It's fully functioning. Here at headquarters, we drive it you know, every few days. We're working, on, we're working on it and driving it, making it better. And so as these pieces started coming into play, the only thing they have now is, oh, you don't have anything in production. That's the only criticism they have of us now is you don't have anything in production. Well, the investors don't care about that. Why? The investors actually love this. This is where it, it, it happened. Investors don't want to wait until you're $1,000 a share like Tesla to invest in you. How do investors make money? Growth. So in, in order for an investor to make money, they got to get in early. Early enough that there's a little risk, but late enough that the business model has been proven. That is the perfect message of Nikola Motor Company in the world. It is early enough there's a little risk, late enough that the risk has been de-risked. De the business model has been de-risked. We have the largest hydrogen station in the Western world. We have a hydrogen truck fully operational and running. We have an $800 million order with Anheuser-Busch. If you, if you factor in the miles in the trucks, 800 order, $800 a million, a dollar a mile, a million miles. You know, well, it's actually a little bit less than a dollar a mile. I'm sorry. It's be a little bit less than that. But anyways, long story short is, is that all of a sudden now people are starting to see, holy crap, these guys are real. And we're less than, you know, we're, 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 we have, you know, we're next year. Well, actually this year we have trucks coming off the assembly line right now, hand built in Europe being tested. And next year they start limited runs all the way into the end of next year when we start really pushing and, you know, it depends on the coronavirus. But we're essentially ahead of all of our competition. So all these things were like, you have to message it. And I'm the most accessible executive, I think, one of them, on Twitter and Instagram on the, in the entire world. So investors get an unparalleled ability to talk to me, ask me questions, and get my responses that they'll never get from the Ford CEO. They'll never get from the Chrysler CEO. Why? Because they're, too, they're a big bureaucracy. They can't do that. It's too risky. But that's, who made, that's why Nikola is so valuable is because investors get an unprecedented ability to talk directly to us, to know every problem, to know the good and the bad, to ask me questions, and to see the business model. And that's why Nikola is successful. I love that. Yeah. I'm curious, like um, what I'm really fascinated by is like, obviously we could kind of see the day when we're going to have a bunch of Nikolas on the, on the roads and we have Teslas and we have other vehicles, but even further than that, you know, we hear about autonomous transportation and autonomous, uh, sorry, uh, aerial transportation and aerial autonomous transportation eventually. Like, how do you, like, do you, is that something that you're also thinking of like way down the line that Nikola could also be a part of, or are you still mainly just focused on let's get, let's get these Nikolas on the roads and then we'll go from there. No, hundred percent focused only on our trucks. That's it. There's, and that's the hard part for entrepreneurs is they don't know how to focus. I already get a lot of criticism because we have four or five programs going on at once. And it actually is more efficient. What people don't know is that is actually more efficient. Why? Because a lot of divisions like say thermal, they might finish up on the pickup truck, but then they're sitting there idle. What do they do after that for six months? Well, they work on the next program. So you're, 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 these programs are just moving in circles with all the team members, keeping them fully utilized. So you, it's actually cheaper to produce three or four programs at once than it is one program at once. No one knows that, so they criticize you for it. But it's a good, it's a good question, and it's a, it's a great one. So, yeah, we were able to – that's kind of the biggest criticism I get is focus, and that's what you have to do is you have to really focus, and we're not going to do anything else except for these trucks, and that's it. And Trevor, from my understanding, Nikola is more than just a brand of cars, right? And I think now that's maybe what some people are thinking is that, okay, they have these trucks, they have these, you know, semis, whatever, and that, you know, you're not a traditional car company, you're not doing a sedan, whatever, right? But do you see a day where every car is powered by Nikola? No. Um, there will be a day when every car is powered by electrification that is being built, but it certainly won't be Nikola. In, in totality. So we will have a chunk of the market, you know, in trucking, we might get 20, 30% of the market. And, and in that case, you know, we would end up being almost a trillion dollar company because we control the energy with the truck. So Nikola makes five times more revenue per, per truck we sell than our competition does. So when Peterbilt sells a truck, they get 150 grand in revenue. When Nikola sells a truck, we get almost a million dollars in revenue. So you know, almost is a little bit less than that. So that's why we're so valuable. So all we got to do is really focus on executing 20 or 30% of the trucking market in the U.S. and we become a trillion dollar company, in my opinion. That's where we'll go. So it's kind of, a, that's, you know, you kind of helps you understand the, 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 
the valuation, the reason, the focus, and how we're not just a truck company, we're truly a technology energy company. And that's what we're actually, over the next few months, Nikola is focusing now on the message of how we're a true technology energy company, not a not just a truck manufacturer. So for, t- we're doing an interview today is I believe June 30th, but on June 29th or yesterday, uh, you guys released the pre-orders. And from what I remember you saying, and I could have heard you wrong, that there were about 10 billion in pre-orders, right? That is on the, that's on the semi-truck. So that's for the on revenue the on the semi-truck. Yeah. So the pickup truck, we, got uh, open. we just opened uh, reservation yesterday on pickup truck and it has been incredible. I can't talk about the quantity because it's a material event. Um, and I have to disclose that in some of the filings with the SEC. But right. it is nothing short of amazing to see the amount of excitement around the Nikola Badger pickup truck. And it comes in both battery electric and hydrogen electric. And those just opened up yesterday for reservations. Paid right. reservations, not just any reservation. Right. What is it going to take for a company like Nikola to, or, or just any other company to be able to eventually drive down the prices and make the products more available and more accessible to more people to truly have the impact that you want to have, right? Because you talk about Nikola being a company and you've been building this for five, six years now where it's focused on impact. If you were focused on sales, you could have gone, gone and opened an ice cream shop and made money, right? When do you see there being a point where there is a greater impact because everyone can have access to it? That's one reason why we designed the, the Nikola Badgers because the Badger allows you to do high quantity and allows you to drive down the cost of, of your fuel cell. So the same fuel cell that's in the Badger goes in the truck, the big big, big, big semi-truck, but there's actually right. two of them in the semi-truck. So you need double the, the size. So you have two of them in there. So the more Badgers we can sell, the cheaper our entire business mod, you know, cost of materials are. And the cheaper they are, the more widely acceptable they are. So I believe that most of the OEMs are going to start coming together, working together to offer a um, offer the ability to get you know to to drive down the cost. You saw like Volkswagen and Ford, I believe, did a deal because they're trying to drive the cost down of electrification. Right. You're going to see the same thing with the fuel cell industry, where everyone comes together and we all drive that cost down dramatically, where it becomes so cost competitive that you'll never buy a gasoline vehicle again. Very cool. Yeah. Trevor, this has been awesome, man. Thank you. I know, I know you're a busy guy, so I appreciate the time and you know hanging out with us for an hour and telling us a little bit about your story and what you guys are working on with Nikola. I think uh, I speak for everyone where I say you know we're all on the edge of our seats, excited to see what you got to bring. Uh, and Nikola World's coming up, I think in December, right? Uh, so yeah. we're excited uh, for what's to come. Um, one last thing I was going to tell your audience is, look, you're going to fail a lot in life. Don't ever be hard on yourself. This life is hard enough, man. Just, just learn. You got to learn to love yourself and learn your your progress and your reward and your even the hardest times in your life are learning lessons. I've been through a lot of them. Just don't don't be so hard on yourself. Work hard, but don't be hard on yourself. It's you're gonna do okay. You may not make it all the way, but no matter what, you're gonna see progress in your life and you're gonna do good things. So stick with something you're passionate about. Then no matter what, you've made an impact on this world. Be a good person. Treat everyone with respect. And you love them like your own family, and you'll see people follow you to the ends of the earth. And that's the, that's the best advice I can ever give someone uh, coming out of this interview. I love that. Thank you so much. Thanks, Trevor. Hey, thanks, guys.